Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Associate Professor Mark Lurie. He's an Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Brown University. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, some about HIV, a bit about coronavirus, uh, various infectious diseases. So, Mark, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me what... uh, what got you into uh, epidemiology and how long have you been working in it, first of all? Uh, so I started in epidemiology um, in the early 90s. Um, it was not a direct path for me. I had no idea really even what epidemiology or public health was. I was raised by my dad was a doctor. And so I, I knew what medicine was and I knew that I certainly wanted to avoid that in my life. Uh, but I didn't know public health was an option uh, until I was a uh, doing a master's degree in African history. I'm from South Africa, so I've had a lifelong kind of interest in uh, in Africa, but in particularly in South Africa and apartheid and its sort of uh, long-term legacy uh, to this day. Um, what I uh, came across as a historian was a fascinating uh, study that looked at the early spread of tuberculosis in Southern Africa. And to cut a long story short, essentially what happened was um, with the discovery of gold uh, in the late 1800s, you had large numbers of young men congregating uh, around the gold mines. Obviously, the underground conditions were highly conducive to the spread of tuberculosis. You're working in a hot, dusty environment with uh, lots of silica dust, which weakens the lungs and makes you more susceptible to tuberculosis. Uh, And above ground, the conditions are perfectly ripe for the spread of TB uh, to other miners because people are living in very close social quarters. Um, That we could have all guessed, but what um, Randy Packard, the uh, author of this book, White Plague, Black Labor, showed was that um, as a result of the patterns of migration that have been ingrained in South Africa, um, the... uh, uh, first urban, the first spread of TB were in these urban hotspots, oftentimes around the mines, and then through a very efficient system of migrant labor that is sending those men back to rural areas uh, at that point, really once a year around Christmas time when they got a break, was a very efficient means of spreading tuberculosis then to to rural areas which had never before seen TB and therefore had um, devastating impact. Um, I came, I came around in the early 1990s when HIV was um, already an issue in this country, but not really yet established itself in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was clear to me, having read Packard and understand, understanding the history of tuberculosis, that the very conditions that he described in the early 1900s um, were very much still in existence today. The long-term impact of a migrant labor system in South Africa meant that most of the people who that there's a large amount of migration from rural areas to urban areas and that much of it is temporary and much of it is amongst men seeking employment 
who then return home sort of later in life uh, or uh, multiple times throughout the year. And it was clear to me that HIV was going to follow a very kind of similar spread that Packard had had described because those conditions were so similar and and um, still you had those those hostels that were you know exacerbating uh, uh, poor living conditions, but in the case of HIV around those hostels, you saw a development of a kind of uh, um, industry to service those people both sexually and with alcohol. Um, and and those things kind of fueled the spread of HIV first on the gold mines in those hotspots, and then once again very efficiently distributed throughout Southern Africa when men migrated back home. Um, so that's how that's how I got into it. Um, and my early work was in um, in the in a province of South Africa called KwaZulu Natal, which turns out to be. Uh, literally the epicenter of the HIV epidemic, probably the place where we have measured the highest prevalence and incidence of HIV in the world, Um, also turned out to be a place with a very high amount of migration to the mines and to other places. And I don't think those two things are coincidental. Um, When I went back to South Africa in the early 1990s or 1994, it was just after Mandela had been elected, the first democratic opportunity for the majority of South Africans and a time of great hope and also a time really at the beginning of the epidemic where some serious mistakes were made that um, exacerbated the epidemic later on. And indeed, I see some similar uh, kinds of uh, mistakes that we're making today with, with coronavirus. Yeah, so, okay, you have very unique insights onto uh, what's going on right now. So yeah, let me know what are your thoughts? Uh, you see it with, with, with practiced eyes. So what do you think that uh, nations are doing right and doing wrong in regards to coronavirus? What do you see as the path ahead? So thinking of just a little bit more broadly, like the things that, that intersect where my work intersects is, is the first is around the issue of migration and, and human movement. And we think if we think of that kind of historically, it's remarkable to think that three or four generations ago, the vast majority of people never strayed more than five or 10 miles from their house that they were born, right? They, they kept a very, very uh, limited geographical footprint. And over the course of the last couple of generations, that has changed absolutely and completely in human existence. And we're all part of a mobile interconnected world. And of course, um, that's how infectious diseases move around. So so that's sort of one lesson is the um, the importance of, of human movement, of contact between people, because after all, the thing that infectious diseases have in common is they spread between people and therefore they're going to follow the kind of physical, uh, geographical movement of people. The, another thing that I think is really important and that sort of also is par- draws some parallels to the HIV epidemic is that... Um, in, infectious disease epidemics tend to unfold in a very short, very short periods of time, right? Unlike um, cancers and things which are, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 year um, trajectories, infectious diseases happen in, a, in a, a much more contracted period of time. So think of where we are today with, with COVID, we've got 8 million infections globally of a disease that six months ago, n- nobody had ever heard of and and probably never existed. So in a very short period of time, you know, this disease has been able to propagate the the globe very, 
very efficiently. And a corollary to the um, rapidity with which these things happen is the importance of early intervention. So as you wait and delay to intervene, the kind of accumulation of cases that you miss prior to intervention makes it very difficult to intervene effectively, which is a, a complicated way of saying you get much more bang for the buck early in the epidemic um, when, you, when you intervene early than when you do later. And if you think about that, um, in the US now, you know, we've got um, multiple tens of thousands of ongoing cases. So to trace uh, all of those uh, people and the contacts of all of those people, that's a, a huge uh, logistical undertaking that's very, very difficult to do. However, if we'd done it effectively at the beginning of the epidemic, where we only had a few hundred or a few thousand cases, we, we you know, would have stemmed the flow of the epidemic. So the, the importance of intervening kind of early and effectively. And then of course, there's a, a broader kind of global health message, which is uh, about the importance of consistent and accurate uh, health messages from trustworthy people. And that's clearly something that we've lacked in this country in relation to COVID. Um, in South Africa as well, early in the epidemic, we had a president who uh, didn't think that HIV caused AIDS uh, and a minister of health who thought that antiretrovirals were no good, that people instead should be um, eating beetroot and garlic. So we've had our fair share of misinformation. And, and those things, I think, are highly detrimental to controlling an epidemic because they lead to uh, conspiracy theories, they lead to um, ignorance, yeah. And they lead to confusion. And those are all of the things that one really wants to avoid uh, when you have a small amount of time to address a really, really major issue. Well, I've even heard that there was uh, myths going around with HIV that if you sleep with a virgin, it'll cure you and just all kinds of crazy stuff. Indeed. I mean, that was uh, that was an early one of early one of many early kind of theories about uh of sham cures and uh, treatments for HIV that we, you know, we've been hearing about for a very long time. Another sort of pressing parallel, something to think about is, uh, even though we're, what, 35, 40 years into the HIV epidemic, we don't yet have an effective vaccine. Um, we've tried multiple um, vaccines uh, in human populations and, and none of them have been you know, anything more than remotely encouraging. Um, in the vaccine situation with COVID, we are trying to compress a, a timeline uh, that usually is, you know, much, much longer into a very short period of time. So HIV, we've, we've never even developed, even over the last 35 years of knowing about the virus uh, vaccine. Uh, on average, it takes about four years to develop a vaccine, and we're hoping to develop one in, or with coronavirus in something around a year. The president will tell you it's you know around the corner and it's about to be available, but it's obvious that it's quite a long way away. And even a year is an incredibly optimistic prediction, which is not to say that there isn't an unprecedented effort underway with uh, multiple vaccines being developed and some of them already in testing, um, even some factories being built to produce vaccines about whose efficacy we don't even yet know. Uh, so they're trying to do things like that to compress the timeline so that if we do 
find a vaccine that we can rapidly scale up production because after all, it's something that we're gonna to wanna to get to a vast majority of the global population, which is somewhere around what, uh, 8 billion people at this point. So with HIV, I mean, it, how many people a year does it kill nowadays? And it's been around since the 80s. It just seems like everyone's gotten used to it and it's no big deal, even though it's a huge deal. Um, no, that's true. And um, there's no doubt that um, there have been huge successes in HIV, even though we don't have a vaccine. Um, what we do have is very effective treatment so that people who get on treatment early and are able to remain on treatment uh, can essentially have about the same life expectancy as people who are uninfected with HIV. So it's, it, it is remarkable in the sense that we do have uh, effective treatment. Um, the problem is that, uh, as, as is always the case, the wealthy are more likely to get access to those, uh, to those treatments. And poorer countries, uh, you know, historically have, have struggled. And there's still, you know, many people in sub-Saharan Africa, which is, remains the epicenter, uh, who are not yet on treatment. And equally importantly is that every year we're getting you know, tens of thousands of new infections. So we haven't stemmed the flow of new infections and, and we're, we continue to add to that. Um, uh, the, but again, the kind of biggest weapon that we have in our arsenal is treatment, which is fabulous if you're infected and it can not only uh, extend your lifespan and um, allow you to return to very much uh, a kind of normal physical activity, uh, but it also lowers the probability that you will infect other people. So it has a kind of individual and population level benefit. And we've seen that um, in the countries that are most impacted by HIV over the last decade, those are the ones that have actually seen the largest reduction in the number of new infections. So they haven't, de they haven't uh, completely eliminated new infections, but they've reduced the amount of new infections significantly. And that's, that's sort of true across, pretty much across Southern Africa. Most of that, I personally believe, is due to the public health impact of large scale up of antiretroviral therapy. And yeah, so that's, that's where we stand with the epidemic today. You are right that it's been a long time since HIV was the kind of flavor of the month that we, that we all talked about and uh, raised money for and uh, was very much on our radars and front pages. Uh, and um, that is obviously not the case today, uh, but it's, which is not to say that the, that the end of HIV is anywhere near in sight. So what about uh, the world's reaction to uh, coronavirus? Do you think it's, I mean, I don't know, is it, I, besides, I guess, the plagues of old, it doesn't seem like there's been this, uh, this much of a response, not even close. What's your thoughts on it? No, I think I think that's probably fair to say that this is probably the kind of largest public health intervention that's ever occurred. You know, I can't think of anything short of um, the rollout of antiretroviral therapy, which has impacted you know tens of millions of people across the world. Um, but this is something that impacted certainly a much larger proportion of people, and um, it's also something that that um, because of lockdowns or stay-at-home orders that were, you know, widespread across the globe, that, you know, 
somewhere close to the majority of the uh, global population actually changed their behavior, at least for, for several months. So in that way, it's unprecedented. And I think it's fair to say, at least from the data that we have from the United States, that the lockdowns uh, or stay-at-home orders, whatever you want to call them, were, were largely effective. And I think there's some data starting to show that, including some of my own work that we just submitted for, for uh, peer review and hopefully for publication fairly soon that's looking at uh, what we call doubling time, which uh, is, a, is a kind of measure of how quickly the epidemic is spreading. Um, and we found something quite interesting, which is that across the United States, the doubling time is has increased significantly when you compare um, pre the pre-lockdown period to um, to the lockdown period. So so the, and so that's a good thing. It means it's taking us significantly longer. In fact, it's taking us eighty percent longer for the number of cases to double during the lockdown period as compared to the pre-lockdown period. So things slowed down considerably across the U.S. when we went into lockdown. There were five well, that states. Was the, that was the message, though, is flatten the curve. But now what? I mean, it caused untold damage to economies. You know, other diseases were ignored. Like we talked about offline, you know, cancer screenings weren't done. A lot of regular medical care was labeled as elective, which is, you know, a false label, I believe. And there's just been mass suffering. So wonderful. You know, we flattened that curve. But what about everything else? And what from here? You're just going to keep locking. I mean, it's not going to go away, it looks like at all. So what do you do? You just keep locking down people forever? It's not going to work. What's the path? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think all of those things are true. And I think it, it, it is um, increasingly difficult to keep locking people down. And I think now that we've lightened those restrictions, we've sort of, we've given people the key to, to open their doors to the lockdown. Uh, it's going to be doubly difficult to then ask people to lock down again after that. And that's my, that's my major concern. I personally believe that um, right now we're producing about 20,000 new cases a day in the United States. And that's been the case for quite a long period of time. It's a very, very flat curve. It is not a curve that is noticeably uh, going down, but if if anything, it's plateaued and continues to uh, produce roughly twenty thousand cases a day. So that twenty thousand cases a day is um, six hundred thousand cases a month. That is an awful lot of cases, and we get about a thousand deaths a day, which is thirty thousand deaths per month by by some of some current modeling estimates. By the end of the summer, we're going to have another 100,000 deaths. So um, it's true that we've ignored other things, but the scale and scope of what the coronavirus presents us and what it would have looked like had we not intervened at least early and relatively effectively, I think is, is actually mind boggling. And it's easy to say, you know, look at all the negative, look at all the bad side effects and the shutdown of the economy. The truth is if that if we hadn't done that, the numbers that we were seeing would be truly catastrophic and unable to be uh, understood or dealt with in any kind of meaningful way. And I don't think that's what anybody wants, right? What we're looking for is the right balance where we can return to a kind of normalcy, but we have to be able to do that safely. Um, 
I think what we're getting into is a false sense of complacency. And I see that going on for the next couple of months, um, partly because summertime is here. Um, the virus is slet, uh, spreads slightly less efficiently in warm weather. And also people will be outdoors a lot more and it spreads less efficiently outdoors. Um, so there's going to be, I think, a kind of continuation of the numbers that we've been seeing over the last couple of months uh, without a drastic reduction. And come the fall and uh, the winter, um, when flu season comes around, uh, when people are forced to be indoors, uh, and when uh, we're no longer um, going to be wanting to pay serious attention to uh, lockdown orders and other kind of public health initiatives, uh, then I think we are potentially in for something that is is even worse than what we've already experienced. So, oh, even worse. I mean, the mortality rate, uh, again, numbers still bouncing around. You know, I've heard 0.26%. Uh, the higher percentages, I don't know if they apply or not. I mean, who knows? But again, why why is this happening when all these other diseases, it's it's totally okay to die from them? You know, why haven't we locked down because of driving cars or HIV or, you know, cancer or things like that? Like, it just seems like this disease is the only one that matters. And other ones, it's like, yep, people die. No problem. It's fine. And I don't see any calculus on, sure, uh, maybe the lockdowns have helped to stem the spread of coronavirus. But what have been the externalities? What have been the negative parts? I don't see any calculus of that. And I don't see any attention being paid to it. And I also don't see... What's the plan from here? There is no plan, it seems like. There's, you know, at least in the U.S., there's at least 50 different plans, if there are any. And yeah. I, I mean, you know, is anyone even trying to make sense of this? Are they allowed to say anything without being censored? Are there, is there anything in place at all? Um, I mean, look, I think a couple of issues there. I, I, I think you make a valid point that, that um, you know, we can't simply shut down all healthcare and all of society because there's a virus. Um, it is different than car accidents and, and other things in that it is spread from humans to humans. So shutting down and limiting human contact is a kind of known effective intervention. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to lock down, to shut down car accidents, unless you want to just stop people from driving completely, which actually we've, we've done in a way, during this pandemic, and, and 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 no doubt later we will see the positive impact on that, which is that there'll be fewer um, traffic deaths. Um, you are right; there are multiple negative impacts that are not being addressed. Uh, I wouldn't defend that for one second, and I would hope that we could be an advanced enough country that we could do multiple things at once and not have to only address the HIV, the, the uh, coronavirus epidemic, but also be able to deal with the multiple other uh, health issues that we're facing. I would say it's also worth thinking about some of the flip side of the coin, some of the positive things that have come out of this. And I know that's not easy to do because we're all sick of being locked down and, and worrying about uh, our relatives and, and our own health. Um, but we have drastically reduced uh, air pollution. Uh, we've da drastically reduced fuel consumption. Um, we have uh, allowed, uh, you know, at least temporarily uh, some animals to kind of regain their habitat. Uh, so there are a few positive things 
that come out of it and um, not, not in any way do they undo the terrible horror that we're seeing as a result of COVID and the many things that we aren't seeing that you have well pointed out are going, continue to go on in the background because people don't stop dying from other things. They're still dying from malaria and TB and tuberculosis and uh, um, you know many other things. So that all remains true. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, obviously there's no answer. Um, you know, me being in the U.S., obviously I'm U.S. centric, but uh, I don't know. Is you think the world is just waiting for the U.S. to do something and everyone follows? Or, I mean, do you see the dynamic of what's going on with coronavirus in various countries in the world? Or is that, I don't hear anything. I um, mean, you know, when there was hotspots, sure. But otherwise, I just, I hear nothing. Is anyone even looking or listening? And what are other countries doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, let's put it this way. The countries that are succeeding are not waiting around for the United States lead. Um, if anything, we're leading them to the bottom. And the few places that are seeing the greatest surges right now, uh, which I would point out, Brazil and Russia, are um, both places that, in a way, have followed the U.S.'s lead with disinformation, with denial, with the disorganized response. And that's precisely why they're competing with us for the uh, for the very bottom, which is to say for the greatest number of cases. Um, a lot of countries, um, there have been, you know, almost as many uh, variations of, of, the, of an effort to stem COVID as there are countries. Um, as you probably know, you know, some Scandinavian countries took a very different approach. Um, Sweden in particular uh, made a decision that based on the understanding that um, uh, older people are much more vulnerable to COVID, that their lockdown would mostly involve older people and would allow younger people to continue to move around. And even, you know, many places didn't cancel school. Those are, that's one kind of extreme example of a, a different way of addressing COVID. Other um, more authoritarian places like China, obviously, um, you know, had a major lockdown where they really shut everything down in a way that I think, you know, uh, makes what we did in the U.S., um, you know, look kind of sad. Um, sure, we had a major shutdown, but um, I think nothing in relation to uh, the way that China and a few other places were able to shut down. Um, a few places are blessed by geography. You know, if you're a small island like New Zealand, um, then it's easier to uh, keep the virus out and to control it when it comes in. Um, I think the one thing that many countries that are succeeding have in common is that they're doing lots and lots of testing. And that's one of the things that truly scares me in the United States is that we're not testing anywhere near the uh, amount of people per day that we should. If you test, what good is that? So you test people and either that's a snapshot that day, either have it or they don't have it, then what? Oh no, but that's, but that's critical. That, the testing is critical not only because it identifies people, but because it allows you to isolate those people to make sure that they don't infect anyone else and to find their contacts to make sure that their contacts don't either are themselves not infected or don't infect other people. So testing but and if isolation, you can't, if you can't right, isolate. you a snapshot, but it's, 
part of a broader strategy to isolate uh, and, to con and to find contacts of those people so that you can stop the new spread of infection. But you can't stop it forever. People have to live. So they're going to come out sometime. And then at some point, they're going to get infected. You can't stop the, the, the virus is unstoppable. So well, X, well, a certain percentage will have to get it at some point. Um, so the hope is, I mean, honestly, the, the strategy is that we try to minimize what proportion of people get it for now until we have a vaccine. I mean, the, to be honest, you, you're right about that, that the, the virus right now is unstoppable. And uh, in a, without a vaccine, um, unless it, you know, burns itself out, uh, it's likely to infect a very large proportion of us. So what if they did that with AIDS? The, with the whole world would be uh, locked down for twenty years until they until they found or no one's allowed to have sex, you know, for for twenty thirty years until they found antivirals. I mean, it doesn't, you know, if a vaccine's going to take years, who knows if it's even possible? It's just it makes no sense. Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing: you won't be able to to uh, control is other people's sex lives. I think I've learned that more than anything. Uh, you can tell people not to have sex, but that's a uh, that's a sure way uh, to fail. Uh, but the broader point that, um, you know, how I think is, you know, how do we balance the um, immediate large crisis that is undeniable uh, with the kind of background uh, other, other things that are going on? And I certainly don't have the answer to that. Uh, I think if we had erred in the other direction, which is to say we had less lockdown and less restriction, um, I think we would be in terrible shape. I personally think that you know a thousand uh, a, a thousand deaths a day in the United States is is a crime. It doesn't have to happen, and it shouldn't happen. And we have you know the wealthiest country in the world. We should be able to uh, avoid this. So um, yeah, I think you know it, it it raises and points to all kinds of problems that we have uh, in our health system. And you know, uh, throughout our society, um, and these things are going to take a long time to heal. Uh, but to look away and pretend that COVID is not there, or to try to kind of simultaneously uh, deal with it, um, I, you know, I think is very, very difficult. This is a highly infectious disease, and having people in close contact with one another is the precise conditions that uh, that the virus spreads. So. Um, the only prevention method that we have in our tool bag right now, because we don't have a vaccine, is to simply keep people apart and make sure that they that they have fewer contacts with one another. Why? Why only a vaccine? Why not antivirals? Why does it have to be a vaccine? Why can't there um, be treatment for it so it's not it's not so bad? And uh, the death rate goes from I'll just say let's say one percent to one tenth of one percent. Sure. We're happy with um, that with flu. No one cares that. You know, the, the flu rate could be one-tenth of one percent, but we're totally cool with that. We don't do anything. And, you know, in the U.S. alone, CDC says 30 to 70,000 people die each year. That's that's no problem. Everyone's cool with that. That's no, I wouldn't I'm say No, I think that's an exaggeration. I wouldn't say everyone's cool with that. I think that um, that is something that occurs in this country that, you know, there are multiple public health and, and, uh, and medical officials who are trying to reduce that number. Uh, in a whole variety of ways every year. I don't think we just accept that, that that sort of happens as background noise. I think there's a real effort to try to eliminate that. So it's not that we turn a blind eye to that. Uh, but uh, 70,000 deaths over one year 
uh, for flu is significant, uh, in the course of six months, we've seen one and a half times that number already uh, for COVID. So, you know, right. by that calculation, we should be turning huge amount of attention to COVID. Um, no, I agree we should give it attention, but I, I just don't see anyone saying, I, I think we're going to have to get to the point where we're going to say, look, there has to be this balance. There's going to be a certain amount of death. Uh, no one wants that. Maybe uh, they need to set parameters on, okay, well, um, maybe, I, I mean, maybe that's what they're doing. You know, number of deaths, as soon as it gets to this level, then you have to implement some level of restriction. And then when it eases off, you open up again, and then you go down and up and down and up. I don't know. Maybe that's where well, it's I mean, headed. That's essentially, that's essentially the kinds of guidelines that the White House put out for reopening. The problem is that nobody's following those at all. Um, everybody has their own kind of formula. And even those, their own formulas, they're not really following. I want to get back to an interesting um, point that you raised about why only a vaccine, why not treatment? Um, and you're right that treatment could have a major impact. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's more likely to have an individual level impact than a population level impact, which is to say that um, unless you're able to get people on treatment very, very early, you're not likely, the treatment itself is not likely to. Uh, slow the spread of new infections and that um and so so even if treatment just what is, the, what is the goal is the goal to not for people not to die or is well, the goal I mean, for people not to get infected you know a good a treatment a treatment what's wrong, with, what's wrong with being infected i mean people get sick of all kinds of things so what it doesn't make sense like you know again it's not going away stopping someone from being infected i don't think that's really i mean that's just part of life. Everyone gets sickness, you know? It's like saying, I don't want someone to die or sorry to grow old. You know, I mean, people are going to get infected by all kinds of things, but if you could stop them from dying, well, that's like a huge win. No, so but I mean, by that, that, you know, by that calculation, you'd say, why prevent anything? I mean, everybody's going to die, so why bother preventing anything? And why not have, you know, unprotected sex with as many people as you want and come in close contact with people who have Ebola I mean that that doesn't make any sense. Uh, just well, not, we're yeah. time, it doesn't I'm, make just, I'm just pointing out the, uh, the two extremes. To that. I'm not saying go to that extreme, but I, I think people are going to the other extreme. We can't let people get infected. Well, why not? What's wrong with that? If there is an antiviral, if if most people are going to be okay with it, maybe that's okay. the best you can do. You know. Okay, so, so you know that may be the next that may be the next step. The me, the next best step that we have that. Um, you know, that we find some treatment. And in fact, just a few days ago, uh, there's some news that uh, one, maybe even two treatments um, uh, uh, amongst people who are very ill with COVID, right? This is not uh, the average COVID infection, but uh, amongst the, Ill, the sickest people who end up in hospital, it uh, looks like some new drugs can cut the death rate by about a third. So that's, that's very significant. Mm. Uh, uh, but it's not significant if you're one of the other two thirds where it doesn't cut the death rate. Um, right. So, you know, I think a kind of cavalier attitude about, oh, we're, we're all going to get infected. So um, let's just do that and move on. Well, that um, means that you're willing to accept, you know, um, about somewhere between a half of a percent and one percent of the entire U.S. population dying. And I don't think we should be willing to accept that. I think that's an avoidable, you know, possibility that with, uh, you know, decent public health and proper messaging and proper investment, we should 
be able to avoid that. There's no reason why that. Avoid, what, what does avoid it mean, though? Zero deaths from COVID or a half a percent's okay versus one percent? What does avoid it? I mean, that's the problem. I'm not. I'm not asking you to answer it, but no, of course. I, so nobody's going to see... quantify. Nobody's going to quantify and say, okay, you know, half a percentage of deaths is okay, uh, but three quarters of a percent is not okay. I mean, to me, any any avoidable death is not okay. So we should be doing, you know, whatever we can to uh, avoid any death whatsoever. Um, if we but that's can not being that done with, heart, then with... that's you know that's a huge advantage that we that we currently have. Uh, right. For me, as a public health person, what I'm most interested in is, of course, I'm worried about people dying and the uh, terrible outcomes that occur from COVID, but I'm equally worried, if not more so, about the spread from one person to another. And interestingly, with so going back to HIV, we know that with antiretrovirals, getting people on antiretrovirals, as I was saying before, not only has this positive individual impact, but what it also does is lowers the amount of virus in that person's body, and therefore it lowers the probability that they can transmit to other people. So it's right. a both individual level and a population level impact. Now, if we had a treatment of the kind that you're describing, that would not only impact people who are the most, the sickest people from COVID, but could uh, potentially change the course of COVID for everybody who was infected. And we were able to effectively identify enough people early on in the disease. Then you could see why, how a treatment like that, um, which is going to render people less infectious and therefore less likely to infect other people, could have a kind of population level impact. And that's what I would be looking for. Sure, I want to reduce the proportion of people who die. Uh, but I also want to reduce the number of new infections. And for a treatment to be effective there, you would have to identify people very, very early on in the course of the disease. We know mm -hmm. that a certain amount of transmission happens even before people have symptoms. So to be effective, then you have to identify people who are infected prior to them actually having symptoms. And that brings us full circle back to the importance of testing, because unless you're testing people frequently, and a large proportion of the population, you're never going to be able to identify enough people who are current spreaders before they get, uh, before they develop symptoms of the disease, and therefore before they spread the disease to other people. Yeah, I'm just glad that all diseases aren't treated like this because no one would uh, be able to do anything. So, and I share your frustration. You know, we've all we've all been locked up, and I, I think some of the ill effects of that have. Uh, uh, have started to leak out in in the last couple of weeks in terms of the kind of pent up frustration and understandable anger that uh, many people in this in this country are feeling. Um, so yeah, um, uh, I, I hate to be a doomsday, but um, there there are many things about the current handling of the COVID epidemic in this country that um, really. Uh, leave a lot to be desired and are um, leaving us with many more infections in this country than we need to have. Yeah. Well, very good, Mark. What, what's the best way for people to uh, find out more about you? Uh, I would say uh, have a look at the website of the International Health Institute at Brown University, where I, where I am employed and a faculty member. Okay. Um, any particular publications that you've come out with or about to come out with that uh, you want to draw people's attention to? 
Um, sure. So the uh, things that I talked about early on about migration and HIV, some of that early work uh, was published mm -hmm. in the in the early 2000s in the journal AIDS and Sexually Transmitted Diseases. Uh, and I'm hoping uh, that a paper I had just submitted to the Journal of Infectious Diseases or about doubling time of COVID in the United States will uh, successfully pass through peer review and be published at some time in the not too distant future. Okay, well, very good. Well, Mark Larry, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.